0: Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being with us. We have a few people. How many of you have never been here before? We have some who are visiting. So wonderful to see. Where are you all from? Where? New Jersey. Like one of us then. A lot of folks say we sound like New Jersey's or New York or whatever. You know, you're right at home. Uh, so y'all living down here now? Wonderful. Good to see you. For those of you who have not been in the class in the last couple of weeks and perhaps you haven't for whatever particular reason. We're in the midst of studying Matthew. We've come nine of Matthew and you know how I know those of you been in any class that I've taught more than one week, I am a repeater. Repetition, repetition, going back, bringing it forward, whatever. And in Matthew 19, Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees, and you remember what their purpose is. And I want you to listen to this very carefully, because this still is the purpose of too many, of too many And I think it's actually the purpose of every single believer to some extent because we still live in bodies that are under the domination of this world. And we are continually in some way to some degree. Now think about it. Think about yourself. Don't think about your mom and them and your brother and sister and your wife and your uncle and your husband. Think about yourself. In some way to some degree. Every single one of us are looking for a way to change the demands of God's word, the claims of God's word upon our lives. Now, how many of you have ever said, I wonder if, I don't think this would be bad if, oh, I'm free to, and all of that terminology is the same kind of terminology except expressed in much nicer terms than what we find the Pharisees doing. They just come right out and say to Jesus, we don't agree with you. But you see, as believers, we would never do that. We would couch our disagreement in all kinds of other terminology, which sound acceptable. Acceptable. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And this set up the opportunity to take a few weeks away from Matthew 19 specifically to go into the issue of marriage and to anchor marriage in its biblical moorings. And I wasn't intending to do this. I had no intention at all to do this, but as I was studying and whatever and finishing this particular section of Scripture, Matthew 19, 1 to 20, by the time I came to verse 6, I just felt the Holy Spirit say, stop, stop, don't go any further. I want you to do this. And so Jesus, in answering, what does he do? He places the answer Not within the context of his own personal opinion, which he could have done because he had in other places said, but I say unto you. But he places the answer where? In what the word of God says. And as I've said before, and I, I know I'm repeating myself, it's okay. When the world challenges you as a believer as to your belief system. Your morals, what you agree with and don't agree with, etc., etc. Don't give them your opinion. Tell them that, do you believe in same-sex marriage? Do you believe in all of these things? And give them the answer that puts them in contact with the Word of God. I believe what the Bible teaches Make our answers dependent upon and built upon the Word of God and not our own understanding of the Word of God, which that is. But don't give the world that opportunity. Force them to grapple not with you and your opinion and your culture and your background and your religion and your race and all of that. Make them wrestle with the God of glory. Amen? Let's be that kind of people. Too often the church has become very weak because the church has stepped out there and uses cultural activities and cultural uh, explanations, etc. We are people of the word of God. And so you see in this particular text Jesus anchoring marriage in the basis of the word of God. And so last week, I think it was last week, I I said this, that marriage is God's primary means, or at least most, the clearest means of God declaring his image. Remember, in Genesis 126, let us make man after our image according to our likeness. So the purpose of any of us and all of us here, in any and every category of our life, is to be those through whom and in whom the Holy Spirit is imaging the Son of God. That's why we're here. That our lives are a display of who God is. That's the reason we are here. That's where the glory of God is, in who he is and how he functions. And so we said last week, and as a said to you last week if you don't have it in your notes you may want to write it down and this does not say that the singles are less important we're talking about within the context of the church everybody being men uh, everybody being an image of god within the context of the church but there's something about marriage that does it the clearest and most compelling way so i said this marriage is to be the clearest and most compelling revelation of who god is and how god is it is the most compelling revelation the clearest revelation of the nature and the character of god what does that mean this means that god intends that god intends every aspect how much every aspect every single aspect of the husband's life and of the wife's life and of their, their relationship, their communication, their moving forward together, the way they raise their family, the way each one thinks about the other, the attitude that one has about the other. Every aspect of marriage is to be a clear and consistent revelation of God himself which puts a huge responsibility upon the husband and the wife to be submitting themselves constantly and consistently to God so that they are not falling for the temptation to give in to the flesh, to do things independently, to walk the way of the world, but to be that couple who in that relationship most significantly images the God of creation. Now, as we think about this and as we hear this, it should begin to elevate the significance and the primacy and the function of marriage way above maybe what some of us have ever considered it to be. Therefore, I said this, marriage is from God. Marriage is for God, and marriage is about God. Marriage is from God, it's for God, and it's about God. In fact, this means that God is the most important person in the marriage. Not my wife and not me. Not my way and not her way. God himself, his way, his plan, his purpose... He is the fulcrum, the centerpiece, the most significant person in any and every Christian marriage. This means that God's will and God's ways are the most important in the marriage. It means that God's kind of love is the love that is to permeate and be expressed in the marriage. And therefore, knowing this, What we need to start doing this morning, and I think we'll actually get into it this morning, is go through just some of the details of the first couple of chapters of Genesis to begin to look at what the first couple of chapters of Genesis reveal to us about God. What God is revealing to us in little bits and pieces about himself. Because if we are to be images of God... If we have been created and then brought together in marriage, in order to image this God, we obviously have to know something about this God. And so what I did not want to do, although we've taught some of this before... Is to assume that you remember or know some of these aspects. So, want to travel through some of the aspects of God and talk about some of the par- uh, aspects of His nature and of His character before we ever get into the actual issue about our relationships and function as husband and wife. Why? Because we must paint. At least a clear enough picture of this God of ours, whom we are to image in order to know how to image Him, whether we're imaging Him, etc., etc. So let's look at God's self revelation, the beginning of God's self revelation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In Genesis, God begins to make known to us. The most spectacular and most fundamental truth about himself. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the most fundamental truth about God? Once you strip away all the various areas and layers of who God is and what he does and all of that and get down down to the core itself, what is that truth about God that is most clearly desired by God to be announced and to be manifested through his people? What is it? There is one truth that is the kernel truth about God, and that truth begins immediately to be identified, intimated, hinted at in Genesis chapter 1. So the creation, and I didn't tell you what that truth is, did I? Some of you know, some of you don't know. Okay, that's good. The creation account contains several divine hints about the unique identity of this creator God. And so we'll look at a couple of the verses in the chapters 1 and 2 just to begin to look at some of these hints. And I want to take a little bit, a little moment to do this because too often we travel through genesis as we travel through many of the books of the bible and just kind of move through them and going back and get on you know and i've read that and i read and you go back and say now what were the details what did you know about god's self-revelation from this particular verse or from this particular chapter or from this particular book so let's look at verse one as we've done it Chapter one verse one in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth Now, in the English, that seems easy enough. And you remember what I said. If there's any verse that is the most fundamental verse of all the Bible, one verse, there it is, and everything else of the entire Bible sits upon that one verse, it's verse 1. Because everything flows out of this announcement that this God of ours, and we did this, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, who has existed in eternity... Self existent, needing no one, a community of fellowship within himself, creates for the purpose of revealing himself and sharing himself in and with and through his own people. This is the most spectacular activity of self giving. That there is in the Bible because every other aspect and activity of God's self-giving comes out of verse 1. And so we may say, well, the greatest work of God was at the cross. No. The greatest work of God is in verse 1 to begin the whole process that will cost him the cross. You see, the cross is the visible manifestation of what occurs in chapter 1. And etc. etc. And so what is so interesting about chapter 1? Well, when you look at the English, there is nothing. But when you look at the word God in the Hebrew, the word God is a title. Pastor is a title. My name is not pastor. The word God is a title. And the singular of the word God is L, E-L. That's the singular. But in this verse, as in many, many throughout the Old Testament... God is referenced as Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M, Elohim. Now, what does that mean? Elohim is a plural word, is a plural word. Okay, that's odd, but whatever. But then the next part of it is this, the word Elohim, which is a plural word, if I said John and Jack put on his clothes, Well, you may think I talk about somebody else. But typically when you have a plural noun, what kind of a verb do you normally have? You remember your verb and noun agreements? I, singular, verb is singular. They, plural, verb is what? Singular. Singular. A plural, yes. Okay. When you have a plural noun, it should be followed by a plural verb. But in this particular sentence, as in many in the Old Testament, the plural for the word God is followed by a singular. Okay, that's unusual. Well, okay. That's a hint, though. It's a hint. In the very beginning of Genesis, in the very beginning of... The first thing God does in declaring himself as the creator is to hint at who he is. There's a hint there. Plural noun, singular verb. Then when you look at the verbs, I'm sorry, at the pronouns in the rest of that chapter, In verse 5, and it's interesting, some Bibles do use the pronoun, and some Bibles just repeat the word God. But the pronoun is in verse 5, he, and in verse 10, he, verse 27, he, he, that's not a he, he, ha, ha. Verse 31, he, verse 2, chapter 2 is he, several times, chapter 3 is he. So the word is repeated several times with singular verbs. And so this is not just a mistake in chapter 1. And then when we get, for instance, obviously, to chapter 1, verse 26, then we get the announcement of God, let us make man in our image. Well, who's the us? Well, it could be the intensity, and it is. Sometimes the plural is used as an intensification, really emphasizing that this is God's purpose. It has also been explained as the plural of majesty. You know how the Queen of England says, we? You know, we? The only problem with the plural of majesty, it didn't come into real activity until about the 13th century. And so if you go to Daniel, for instance, and you see, you remember Cyrus conquers Babylon. Remember that? And he decrees that the Jews shall be able to go home. He doesn't use we, he says I. In the decree, His I, me, my. And so these kings didn't refer to themselves as we, at least typically so. And when you read the Hebrew literature, David, the king, isn't saying we, he says I. And so it's not that. There's something, again, a very major hint here about something about the nature of God is extremely peculiar, unique, This suggests that there is what? A plurality in the one being of God. What do I mean by a plurality? What is plural? Two or what? More. Two or more. Okay. That there is a plurality. You begin to get a hint here. And it's interesting. If you were to read some of the Jewish rabbinical, um, um, it's called the, the target, whatever. But if you read their commentary, they're all over the place about what this means. And they have no way of understanding any of this. Because the full light has not shone on all these little hints, these suggestions. But if God is a plurality, I thought Deuteronomy 6.4 says that he's one. Remember, hear, O Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh. That's the translation. Yahweh is put together in the Old Testament as the Lord because they were after the, uh, well, they didn't want to say the name Lord. I mean, Yahweh, because they thought it was too holy. So they substituted Adonai. Yahweh, hero issue, Yahweh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, really, what it's emphasizing here is emphasizing that the Lord is the only one. We're about ready to go into the promised land. Moses is... Standing there, giving the people all this instruction in Deuteronomy. And he said, look, when you go into the land, there's going to be all kinds of gods out there. All kinds of stuff. You remember this, that our God, Yahweh, is alone God. He alone is God. These other gods are not gods. And so when you go into the land, remember, it is Yahweh who is God alone. There are no other gods besides God. Now, also, the word one here, "Hero issue Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is the word echad, E-C-H-A-D, echad. It means two things. At least it has two applications or two uses. It can mean singularity or alone or only. And it also can be a collective noun. Do you know what a collective noun is? It's a noun which means unity, a plurality. And so if we say the navy sailed, how many are contained in that one singular word navy? A whole lot. It means that those folks under that command are in unity or in agreement going somewhere and doing something for a particular purpose. And so the word echad means alone, God is alone God. God alone is God. And also the word echad means plurality in unity. For instance, you see that in chapter 2, verse 24. What does it say? The man and the woman, how many? Shall become what? One flesh. And the word one there is echad. In other words, these two, this plurality, shall dwell together in such a relationship that they are considered to be one. So that's what that is. Why do I emphasize that? Because if you were to look at some of the Unitarian uh, attacks against Christianity, you know, the Unitarian Church and others, they will say, you see, Christians believe in three gods because the Bible specifically says God is one, and you have three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it can't be that. It's just one God. Jehovah's Witnesses do the same thing. And they use this verse as one of their proof texts. But the word echad throughout the Old Testament is very often used to describe a plurality, a group functioning as one. And as I said, the the clearest verse, at least at this point in our study, is chapter 2, verse 24. The two shall become one. Look at verses 1 through 3, or at least I'll just describe them in a general. In verses, these are hints. In verses 1 through 3, we have a set of hints. In these three verses, there is a triad. Do you know what triad means? A set of three. Triad means a set of three. There is a triad of distinct divine agents involved in the creation. There is a triad of distinct divine agents in the creation. So what does it say? In the beginning, God. Then what does verse 2 say? And the Spirit of God does what? Hovers. Then what does verse 3 say? And God what? Said the Word of God. And so you have three aspects of God functioning in concert in the creation. And so the creation is not the aspect of one particular agent. The creation is the result of three divine agents. It is God creating. It is God creating by the Spirit. It is God creating by the Spirit and through His Word. And so you have this triad in these verses. These are hints. These are hints. Look at the days of creation. The days of creation are recorded as a triad of six days. A triad of six days. Day one, the creation of the sky. I say sky, sea, and soil because it's easier for me to remember sky, sea, and earth. So I just say soil. So, you know, what is soil? That's just another name for earth because you see, you know, yours has earth. It's just easier for me to remember that way. Day one, the creation of the sky in verses three to five. Then it's elaborated on in verses 14 to 19. Do you have that in your notes? Day two is the creation of what? Sky, sea, it's the creation of the sea. Verses six to eight. And you get the elaboration or the filling in, if you would, in verses 20 to 23. And then the earth, or I call it the soil, verses 9 to 13. And the elaboration is 24 and 25. So again, you get three A set, I'm sorry, a a triad of days, two triads, sky, sea, soil, just the statement that God created those, and then over here, you get a repetition of these three in the same order, just filling in the blanks of what God did when he created those. In verse 27, if you have your Bible open in verse 27, chapter 1 of Genesis, there is a triad of the word created. And now, I realize and I understand that some of this may be for some of you like, oh, man, what is this? We have to build a basis of understanding and biblical proof and revelation. God purposely gives us this information to tell us something critical about himself that's why it's significant for us to go through this kind of a day one day two, do this do that and it may not seem as inspiring to you as other types of teachings i don't know but this should be absolutely breathtaking to you it should be breathtaking and if it isn't you're missing god's point you're missing God's point. If this doesn't say to you, oh, oh my word, this God not only creates, but then he records it in such a way as to not only give us the way of creation, day one, two, three, four, and he did this, he did that, and he created that, and he fished here in the sky, and the birdies, and the, and the animals, and whatever, and people, and... But he does it in a way that begins to be the heartbeat. And you hear the heartbeat. Three beats. Three beats. Three beats. Three beats. So look at verse 27. The word created is repeated how many times? Three times. Why? Why didn't he just say God created them and just leave it alone? Oh, just he, God created male and female, just let and that's it. Why, why go any further? Because you see, there is a pattern here. There is a repetition given to us so that we can begin to see that this God is not like any of the gods of the mythologies of any other religion. that this God is a unique God in himself. And that in every one of these examples, God is saying something. This is what I want you to know about myself. And that everything else from this revelation flows out of it and is the result of it. This is where my glory is in these three beats, in these three beats, in these triads. You see, this is breathtaking as far as I can tell. Because it's God carefully, very carefully, and slowly. God is slow. He's a slow teacher. He takes his time. And he is stitching and knitting together a tapestry of himself. And we begin to see the threads begin to come together. From the very first words in Genesis, God begins to declare himself. So throughout the Old Testament, there are many, many, many more of these mysterious triads. I mean, do you remember, Gen- I, 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 I said in my notes, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, but to just mention to it, Genesis 18. There are three that speak to Abraham, yet there's one, Then there's three, and it's three. One, you know, and the Lord, and angel, you know, what is all this, this intermixing, this intertwining of three and one. What is God saying here? Just many other types. And so throughout the old temple, many mysterious triads, which remained a mystery until one event. So it's like being in a very dark room, absolutely dark, and there's furniture and there's Everything just like this from everywhere, but it's absolutely dark. And in Genesis 1-1, we begin to get these little bleeps of light that go off and on. And you get a little glimpse of this, a little glimpse of that. And by the end of the Old Testament, we have several little glimpses, but the problem is we can't put them together. We don't have an ability to... to bring all of this information i see something right over here but i saw over here and here i see and we don't have any ability to to put it together in a a way that makes sense all we have is a bunch of what bleep 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 so what do we need if this room is shrouded to the place that you can't see let me see Okay, now let me see. I know what that is. Good night. What is that thing? And, you know, and what do we need? We need light. Now, is it an interesting, what does verse 3 of Genesis 1 say? Let there be light. And then what happens on a night when there are wise men in the field by night? Especially in Luke 3. And what happens? A light shines. A light shines. A light comes into the world. A light that in this light announces the birth of a baby. Coming into the world as a human being is the son of God. And at that moment... In the incarnation, the birth of the Son of God as a human, God begins to shine his great light upon all that Old Testament revelation and all of those little bits of hints. And as if we were in this room and everything is dark and all of a sudden someone, Chris back there, began to open, I mean, turn on the lights higher and higher. And the more the light came on, the better. And finally, ah. This is what it's all about. You see, there's no way to discern and understand the very core of God. We know a lot about God from the Old Testament. We know he's... Powerful. We know he's omniscient. We know he's a God of love. We know all of these things. But we don't know the very essence of the very nature of God until this child is born. And how do we know anything other than the obvious things that there is a creator and he's powerful and all that? Remember Romans 1, 19 and 20. How do we know anything more about this God other than what we read in the Old Testament? And that's a lot confusing anyway, I'm sure it is. We know this God to the extent that he desires to reveal himself only one way, in the person, words, and deeds of Jesus. He is the living revelation and description of the person of the being of God. We don't know God at all except in the revelation that God gives of himself in the incarnation. And so if you are wanting to know who this God is, certainly read the Old Testament. You know us. We love the Old Testament. That's where all the foundation is set. But when it comes to knowing this God in the essence of his being, we must travel to the New Testament and look at this man. Look at this man look at what he says about himself and his relationship with god and the spirit look at what he does look at how he submits look at how he loves and how he responds and where he goes to and the everything just look at him his words and his deeds and this man and as we do that that's where God takes the great brush of his revelation and with great strokes, using, if you would, Jesus as his brush, begins to paint the revelation that he desires us to know of himself and to the extent that he wants us to know. You see, there is a plurality in God. And let me give you just a couple of New Testament scriptures about that plurality. Remember what plurality means. It means what? At least two in Matthew three sixteen and 17 remember what happens Jesus is going out into the wilderness John the Baptist is baptizing and Jesus comes and he comes up and he undergoes the baptism John puts him in the water he comes up again and for the first time for the first time we see the Trinity expressed for the first time. And what happens? Jesus comes up and a dove descends upon him. The Spirit of God. Jesus, the Spirit of God. And a voice from heaven says, What? You're my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. First, first announcement of what this triad, this plurality, what it is. And then at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, we get, at least in Matthew, the announcement. Of the triad again, although it's, it's filled throughout, but just to give you these two. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 28, 18? All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Now think about that. There is a man who sits in the throne of God, ruling and reigning and will be returning. A man governs the universe. A risen man. The God-man. And he says, "Make disciples of all nations. What? Baptizing them in the name." Now, the word "name" there is singular, is singular. He doesn't say the names in the name of, and in the Greek, you get the articles. You remember definite indefinite article the the definite article the person a indefinite article a person. You, you remember those things in English? You should have studied your grammar. You see, this is you know, whatever, and in the Greek. Each of these names is preceded by the definite article. And so the Holy Spirit is very specific. The name single of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is incorrect to say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is incorrect because had it said the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it could be constrained that this God is just functioning as in, in these modes of father, one time, spirit, son, and so on. No, we're having a, a declaration of three distinct persons. Or you could think this way, although hopefully we will correct it, so don't go out of here and say it. Well, there looks like there could be three deities here. But we do know this, that there are three, but the three are connected to be one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, the word of God is very precise. So for the first time, we begin to see something about this God that is the most critical issue. And it's interesting, when Jesus is baptized, what do we learn from that baptism? The first thing we learn is that God is a triune being. Isn't it? Right? You see Jesus' little baby there, and then they're going to Nazareth. Then they come back when Archelaus has died and whatever. They're living in Nazareth, and uh, you know he grows up. He's 12 years old. He's in the town. But we don't know too much. I must be about my father's business or in my father's house. Well, you know, okay, fine. Well, what does all that mean? But you get the first declaration of the Trinity of God, the triunity of God, at the baptism. And it's announcement. This is the purpose of of God in Christ to announce to declare and to display his triunity and he's going to announce declare and display his triunity in the salvation of his people you see the salvation of his people isn't the critical issue it is the Primary means of God declaring Himself in and through His people. Amen? It's all about the very nature of this being whom we call God. So I have a definition down there. I don't know whether it's in your notes or not. And let me read it to you. In the one being of God, there exists three. Do you have it in your notes? Now, I want you to see this. Three what? Co equal. Make sure you see co equal. Co eternal. Very important understanding here. Distinct, co equal, co eternal, distinct, divine. I wrote it that way because each one of those words are very important. Divine persons. Who are they? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of whom, each of these persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is fully God in himself, but not by himself. Each possesses the very same nature. They don't share the nature. They possess the same nature. If I share something with you, I may have 10% of it, and Steve, you may have 90%, right? But you have 90, I have 10. We're sharing something, aren't we? That is not what God is, this is happening. Each one of the persons of God possesses in himself absolutely, totally the same nature that the others possess. How can that be? How can that be? Mystery. Each possessing the very same nature, essence, substance, and attributes. How? Simultaneously. Each relating to the others in a fellowship of love in complete unity. So what we're going to do is beginning next week... Or rather, next week, we're going to have prayer in here. Nettie's going to be leading it. Most of the the ladies will be here. Some of the men may be here because you can't make the men's retreat. Hopefully, you will be able to. But next week, we're going to have prayer. Then, what is that, February 4th or 5th, whatever the first Sunday in February is, we want to start talking about this. These three persons of God and their relational context Because it's the relational context of these three divine persons that a marriage is to be reflecting and is of utmost significance to God above everything else. And then within that context, as we think that way, go back to the question and say, is it lawful to dissolve this unique, utterly centrally, Important revelation of God by divorce. You see, we have to grapple with this. And then we'll have to talk about some of the other issues. So, next week prayer. Following week, we'll come back to this. Thank you.